HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning, Heritage Radio listeners. Today on the show, I welcome Ajay Walia. He is the owner of two Indian restaurants located in San Francisco, Saffron and the Michelin-starred Rasa. Rasa became the only Indian restaurant in California to be awarded a Michelin star. It has also received three stars from the San Francisco Chronicle. He was born in New Delhi, and he moved to the U.S. to pursue an MBA, and he previously worked at J.P. Morgan and Deloitte. Clearly, he's made other decisions that have led him to the life of becoming a restaurant owner. I'm looking forward to hearing about it today. Welcome to the line. Well, thank you for inviting me. So I want to begin by talking about New Delhi when you were a young boy. Uh, what type of childhood did you have? Did you, did you grow up going out to eat a lot, or was it mostly eating at home with the family? Who did the, who did the cooking? Well, I think it's traditional in, in every family. I think it was a combination of both eating out a lot. Um, and that, but that was in the later years as you grew up and you had more freedom to venture out. But it's like, you know, prior to that, it was uh, home cooking. Um, most of it, it's like, you know, with grandma, um, more from my mom's side, it's like my nana and then my grandfather um, and my mom as well. But it's like my mom was a working mom. Um, so I think it's like I pretty much grew up on grandparents cooking. Your parents ran a business together. They worked together, right? They worked together. So for, what did they do? Um, so we had a fabrication unit. We did a lot of exports to uh, all these brands that you know, mostly people see, um, one of the popular ones, Gap, um, we were making all of their clothing line. And uh, if you've heard, the FCUK, <laughs> which you know just sounds the other way around, it's, it's the fr- French Connection UK. That was mm-hmm. one of our biggest customers as well. So you were producing all their clothes, jeans, shirts, everything like that, and then you right. would ship it to their distribution centers? To their, yes, to their warehouses. So, it's like, so we were exporting and... Uh, manufacturing at the same time. So you grew up in a businessy family. They I, were, there I was did. a lot of discussions in there, the house and at the table about business. There were always discussions, and that uh, kind of it's funny that it's like it 
strengthened my resolve to never be in business. Interesting. Why is that? <laughs> um, because, you know, it was just a challenge, you know, every day because it's like, you know, because we had production facilities with people, you know, staying there as well sometimes. And it's like, you know, uh, we had round the clock production and things like that. So it's like, so you were constantly working. And uh, so, so my thing was, it's like, I just want to have a job, nine to five job, go to work, come back home and you're done. And it's like, you know, I want to be as far away from the business as I can be. Um, and I moved here to do my MBA, to pursue that. And, um, you know, after that, it's like I worked corporate. You know, Lord behold. <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, here yeah. you are. Here using I am. your business it's degree like, you know, to run a business. And I'm in the crazier business than my parents were. <laughs> were you uh, the type of kid, did they let you run around the factory and explore? Was it, the ty- was, it a, you know, was it fun for your parents to be involved in that as a young kid? Or was it something that you didn't really see that much? Well, I mean, I, yes, I was, um, I was around the business a lot. Um, and it was, it was more so after my grandfather passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was also where the parents could keep an eye <laughs> on everybody. So it was not a matter of choice. It's like after school, your father picked you up, and it's like you, know, you went to the factory and you hung around, and that's you it. You had to sit there until dad was done, <laughs> right? Until they were home. done, or mom was ready to go home. So mom would leave a bit earlier than dad would, and then dad would follow like a couple of hours later. So your grandpa was really important to you. He was. Yes. You spent a lot of time with him. Can I you, did. Can you speak a little bit about your grandfather and how did he impact your life up until when you were twelve years old? Um, well, I think it's like it was mostly a life of privilege, <laughs> being the only son. Um, you know, uh, at least in our part of the countries, um, you know, back then uh, it was always uh, that you needed a son, somebody to carry on your, you know, family lineage and things like that. We don't think of it that way anymore, but it's like it definitely was true back in the days. And I have three sisters, so I always had a very preferential treatment. <laughs> That's what I remember the most ah, about the, it. The prince. <laughs> yes, you can say that. Um, so I, I, I always had access to everything. Um, above and beyond what my siblings had. And uh, I could, that also meant that I could get away with a lot of things as well. Mm-hmm. So so you, you complete your undergraduate degree I did. Yes. there. And I then did. What, uh, how did you decide to come and study in the United States? Was it, uh, did you want to do it? Was that your, at your parents urging? How did you end up leaving what seems like a, sort of a, a wonderful setup to sort of continue working in the family business? Right. You got an MBA, but decided to leave. True. So, um, well, the decision to come here was completely my own. Um, the decision to pursue um, was an, uh, when, uh, an MBA as well was my own as well. Um, at the time, I think it's like I, uh, when I look back, it's like I don't even think it's like I ever knew what MBA stood for when I started to think that I would do an MBA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I, I still think to this this day and age that it's like when I did it, it was too early on. If I could do it all over again, probably I'd do it now because there is a real world experience mm-hmm. behind versus it's like in a just textbook at the time. And, so... When you move to America, where do you move to? And and was it a culture shock? Had you been before? Like, how did you feel coming here really far away from your family? Um, was it a feeling of excitement or the opposite? I think it's, it's a combination of both. Um, and I had traveled many times prior to that uh, for business. Um, you know, helping and uh, uh, my dad. And then it's like I wanted to come here anyway. So that was a you know great opportunity to come in and see. I ended up in Chicago 
and, um, and you know both my wife and I we both moved here um, and you know we lived here so it was it was exciting at first but um, you know more depressing later and I think that that was more uh, it was more real around the holidays because you were alone you didn't know anyone there was no family to go back to or no one to go to um, so there was there was a lot of that void in between, which uh, you know eventually as you stay and then you become you know become with friend friends with other people, you know that kind of goes away. So I am curious about when you're living in Chicago, you do have a friend who is a chef or is a restaurant owner. I, I saw a little something about this, yes. and so you helped him in some capacity, right? Can I you t- tell the listeners exactly like? Was this your first foray into the restaurant world? How did you end up getting sort of roped into this, <laughs> helping a chef friend type right. of scenario? Well, it's like, you know, prior to meeting him, um, my foray was always from the other end, which was from the consumer end of it. And it's like I ate a lot. And, uh, you know, eating out, I was privileged enough to it's like, you know, eat at the best restaurants, best hole-in-the-wall places. So we knew in the city the digs of, you know, where we go for a particular item. And it's like, you know, so I have a lot of memories of that. Now, that's changed now because it's like, you know, there's an influx of all kinds of cuisine. But there was before, while I was growing up, it was only Indian cuisine. And there's a huge variety there. And when I came here, I was introduced to this guy, um, who I consider to be my mentor, um, although it's like he doesn't feel that way, <laughs> um, was, and it was, it was just a, um, a very natural feeling. It's like, because I very quickly connected with him. Um, uh, you know, as a friend, I connected with him as somebody that came from the same area, um, you know, where, where I grew up. It's like, you know, my, there was a con- instant connection there that way. And, you know, and, and I saw it's like, you know, well, in this profession, most of the people are not educated and he's not either. And, and that's, that was because it's like he wasn't privileged as, as much as I was. And um, his father was a executive chef here at Dawat restaurant in New York, um, which is Mother Jaffrey's restaurant. And so he, he grew up in that family. And he had a restaurant of his own, Great Resolve, and I told him, it's like, I'll help you at the front of the house because that's all I know. And, um, you know, I can write your checks, I can do your documentation and do other stuff, and that's kind of where it started. So it's like, you know, as you get into the restaurant, it's like I had a day job, and evenings I was free. We didn't have kids. <laughs> and, uh, you know, both me and my wife, it's like we're pretty passionate about uh, at least Indian food. Um, and so it became natural. It's like, you know, I hung around him, and then it's like before I knew as I was sucked. <laughs> so you sort of started off as his de facto bookkeeper in a way, uh, or you yes, were you absolutely. Were, so, and did that mean? Did you have interaction with customers? Were you were you in the restaurant at night, or were you more like in an office? No, no, I was always in the restaurant in itself. It's like in you know, working front of the house, mm-hmm. and it was more front of the house. Was it's like you know bookkeeping, and then it's like you know making checks. Back in the day, we didn't have the point of sale systems, right? So we were the old fashioned way. The KOT tickets came in, and it's like there were nights. It's like as a busy restaurant small 40 seat restaurant but it's like you know with a good turnover and there were nights where i never looked up the entire night because Mm -hmm. it's like all i heard was well we need check for table three we need check for table six you know can you add this to that check and then here we go all over again and my biggest thing was it's like i hated when the handwritten checks had oh cancel this and then add that to it so i would start all over again and then make a new check because it's like when I wanted that to be presented to the guest, I didn't want like you know a whole bunch of scribbling on it, mm-hmm. <laughs> canceling, adding, and things right. like that. And then of course, 
at the end, it's like somebody adds after the check is all done. Now I got to do it all over again. <laughs> so did you become, at that point, did you become invested in that restaurant? Did you take on a partnership level role in that spot? So I was never financially invested. Okay. I was always emotionally very in- mm-hmm. invested into, into the restaurant. I called it my own. Um, until date, it's like I feel the exact same way. Um, it's and not what was different. it called? It's called India House. Okay. In Chicago. Still around? It's still around. Awesome. And they do a remarkable job. It's, um, you know, they, at one time, it's like, you know, we're the biggest banquet in the country, Indian, and they still are. And, um, you know, they, they, they do amazing, amazing things. And for somebody, it's like, you know, who's um, worked his way up and has gone to the levels of success that he's achieved, it's just remarkable. It's like, you know, he still, till date, inspires me. So you get this kind of crash course of what's going on in a restaurant. <laughs> and then after that, you do end up purchasing a restaurant in Chicago or so was it somewhere I, else? So we, um, so we both, my wife and I, I was fortunate. I'd, so although I worked in consulting, I didn't travel. And um, my wife um, traveled at the time. And um, we had our first kid and you know, she was older. She was going into kindergarten and it was just getting difficult for me. To, to try and manage a kid. And as a, as a young dad, I was not used to it. And uh, there, was, there was a lot of learning curve there. And so it's like, you know, and my wife was always struggled because, you know, she wanted to spend more time and we couldn't, but she didn't want to leave the job. So that wasn't an option. So uh, one of the things was like, it's like if we move to the headquarters, and she works for Oracle, by the way, and if we move to the headquarters, then maybe she can just do something at the headquarters and we probably don't have to move so we decided to move to california mm. so it's ironic because in my career although you know me me and my wife we've been together 30 years almost and uh, 25 of those to be married um and uh you know we, we've always it's like you know studied together um since um undergrad then you know grad school as well and um, and then we kind of like worked together. We always started off in the same company, went different ways, then came back to the same company. And here I was, it's like, you know, again, after we had separated our paths, it's like, you know, I went on to the tech side and she was still on financial. Um, and then she joined Oracle. And then I applied at Oracle. They hired me. They moved me to California. And then she took a transfer. So we were back at Oracle. There both you of go. us. <laughs> keep coming back together. We keep coming back together. So you were working at that time for Oracle on the tech side. On the tech side. So, that, I wasn't, so can you dive into that a little bit? What exactly does that mean? You were doing tech consulting. So we're, we're doing div- tech consulting. So it's like I came from the banking side. Um, so I was in their treasuries and cash management division. So which is basically it's like you know, when they want to develop a product to say it's like, okay, you know, we want to do bank reconciliations. We want to do you know, check balancing and things like that. It's like what are the things and the systems and it's like you know, what, are, what is the information that's needed because the coders are not going to know how the business actually works in a real business environment. You, know, you tell them the requirements to say, oh, we want the system to be able to do this. Um, learning that requirement. Then you translate that, and then you learn from there. It's like, you know, what data can go inside, what data cannot go inside, what structure. It's like how the reporting is going to work, you know, what flexibility you need to build in into the software because everybody wants to see different information and and those kind of things. So I brought in the functional side of the business, um, working um, working in that division, and um, you know, that's that was my role. How much of your success in the restaurants do you attribute to what you've learned practically on the job from Oracle and your other consulting jobs. How much of a transfer is there between what you and your wife 
do in your quote unquote traditional jobs <laughs> and what happens at the restaurant because no matter how good the food is, it's right. a business, right? It is absolutely Bills come business. in. Bills come checks in. Checks have to go out. They do. You know, there's a, <laughs> there's a, transfer, of, a transfer of data that occurs that seems like that's applicable. I, so I, I think it's like, you know, um, working in a corporate environment, what you get to learn is, you know, working with different facets of people. Um, you know, learning to manage expectations and things like that. I don't think it's really directly replicable or uh, transferable to what I do currently. Um, I think education has more to do with that. Your ability to read, write, understand, decipher, and then learn, um, you know, from your mistakes and your successes at the same time to be able to follow, to look up to somebody has more to do with that. Um, you know, when I opened up a restaurant, um, I, the only thing it's like I knew was I was one of those eight out of 10 people that wanted to be restaurant tours. <laughs> <laughs> And and knew nothing about the restaurant besides that it's like well I can eat and I can probably run a restaurant as well. Okay, perfect. You've <laughs> led me to my next question, which is, you got the itch, right? I People did. get this feeling that they right. can they want to open up a restaurant, but you can have the means, you can have the connections, Connect. you can have the chef, but people rarely do it. It's risky. It requires a huge amount of effort. So. Uh -huh. What made you truly feel like you were ready to do to open up uh, Saffron? Well, I don't think it's like I was really ready, which you find out later <laughs> <laughs> after you open up a restaurant. And um, I was ready, but the only thing I was ready for was to open a restaurant. And you know, I had that itch that it's like I, I want to do a restaurant, and, and it wasn't because I could do it well. It's because I just saw it as it's like, well, this is not the food that we grew up with. And this is not the food, what we call it. It's like an Indian. And it's just a very standard, um, you know, in my conversations, I usually tell people it's like it's like a textbook scenario where it's like it's like a social security benefits roster that you go to every Indian restaurant. They all have to have the chicken tikka masala. They all have to have the tandoori chicken and the naan. And then you can go from one restaurant to the hundredth and they all have it. Mm -hmm. Right. And nobody deviates from that. And um, some of it is market pressure. Other, others is because they don't know anything. And monkey see, monkey do is what happens, which is basically people, I think 90% of the people, 95% of the people look at the other guy's menu, at least in the Indian food industry, and then say, it's like, oh, I'm going to open up a restaurant. Well, they almost have a similar menu. Now, if they happen to be somewhere within your vicinity of where you operate, then they either go higher or lower than you. And that's their extent of business uh, you know, practices or experience. And that's how they start. So tell the listeners a little bit about Saffron. You know, you just touched uh, essentially on, which is sort of the Americanized generalization of Indian yes. food, which is that when people go to an Indian restaurant, uh, they often have, uh, they're often looking for something that's going to be fairly inexpensive. Correct. And they're looking for what you just said. They're looking for, you know, a, vin a vindaloo and they're looking for a chicken tiki masala. Absolutely. How did you tackle that problem? I don't think we tackled that problem. It's an ongoing struggle, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is, it's like, you know, the, the perception of food. And as we learn um, and as we evolve, as we grow, it gives us confidence every day to change the status quo, which is what we did with Rasa. When I opened up Saffron, it's like, you know, we, we did the dishes, we made the dishes, but it's like, you know, and food is not about being authentic or being in a certain way. It is how you feel. 
And it's different for everyone. You and I can both make coffee and they'll be different. At the end of the day, it's still coffee. Which one is right? I don't know. You like yours, I like mine. And, you know, that's how it is with the food as well. So it's like, you know, when we went out to eat Indian food, we didn't like it. Because, again, it's like, you know, our palate, we can relate to what we grew up eating. So it's very subjective because it's like, you know, it was probably down, you know, guy down the street from where I lived, um, a particular restaurant I ate at. And it's like, you know, there was a, so it was a reflection. So saffron is a reflection of my memories of those restaurants and all of those dishes, um, which is reflective there. Some of them were it's like, you know, cooked at our home. You know, some were obviously consumed in a commercial environment. It's like you know, going, going into the fine dining restaurants to hole-in-the-wall places. And that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to bring in and then share that kind of food because it's like, you know, I didn't see the other one. It was still food, Indian food, but I didn't see it as um, that it's like, you know, this is not how it needs to be done. How does that development process take place? You, you know, you can say, I, I want to bring those flavors from my childhood. I want my version of authenticity, right. but then you got to cook it. So are right. you, were you developing recipes? Did you find a chef that sort of shared your vision? How did you, how did you create the path of the flavors and the menu so that it would reflect what you wanted it to reflect about your style? I think that the biggest thing was that um, I don't think it's like it, I could say with confidence that I could cook earlier. And over the years, give it on-the-job training and... Uh, I learned to cook, and some of it was not by choice because, um, you know, we lost chefs and things like that and second other things. In terms of development of any particular recipe, I think it was a combination effort, which is, you know, we try things on our own to replicate the taste of a certain thing. Then, you know, now we have the privilege of saying it's like, okay, you know, the chefs, it's like I want a certain thing a certain way, then I will tweak it based on its second way my preference is going to lead me to it. To say it's like, you know, we need more salt on this one or it's like more tomato on another one or you know, some other prominent spice. It's like, you know, or a different technique. So now I guide that process, but it's like I have somebody doing it prior. I was doing it myself. So do you actually, so before new dishes come on the menu still at your restaurants, right. do you sit down with the chef and your wife and do you do a tasting or is it just you and sitting there and you taste and give notes? I'm curious, like, what is the actual process? Because you're not the actual chef in the kitchen, but you are the creative leader of the restaurant. I am. I think that's a probably a right justification. Um, so today it's like what I do is it's like I give them a list of ingredients. It's, you know, like me supply. It's like, you know, what we need to prepare. And I give them a heads up. It's like, okay, this is what we're trying to achieve and this is what we're going to prepare. But it's like I need X, Y, and Z prepped before I come over um, so that we're going to play with it. And then, you know, we, I play there. As, you know, I stand there within the kitchens and it's like, you know, I'll get hands-on. It's like you know, along with the chefs as well. And then I'll cook. Um, they will cook. And then we'll compare. <laughs> And nine out, of, wins. Well, nine out of ten <laughs> times they win because practice, you know, makes you know, everybody perfect. And um, but usually it's like, you know, I have it's like, you know, probably a better approach to getting to where we need to, you know, where we need to get to. And uh, that's what happens. And so it's a, it's, it's a joint effort. But generally, it's like, you know, like you like you stated, it's like the creativity or the desire to change things come from my side. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more here on Heritage Radio.
Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cooking machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher. Or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. We're back on the line on Heritage Radio. Joining me today is Ajay Walia. He is the owner of two Indian restaurants in San Francisco, Saffron and Rasa. And we were just talking about the way that he works with his chefs in the kitchen to collaborate on new dishes, which sounds like an awesome experience (laughs) to me. It sounds very collaborative and it sounds fun uh, from coming from the perspective of uh, someone who... um, is a business owner and also uh, is in the kitchen a lot. Um, I'm curious about how you find your staff. Uh, how did you find the chefs that lead your restaurant? Um, and what is the process like of, of, of integrating them into this kind of collaborative environment where you say, like, I really want your guys' input, but also... I do have some constraints before you start cooking. I have some ideas of my own that I'd like to introduce. So I think it's like, you know, it's just, uh, you know, for the most part, it's like, it's just about like every, every other business. Most of it is networking, which is basically, it's like, you know, I work there. I like the work environment. It's like, oh, I know somebody else who's looking for a job as well. And then it's like, you know, that's how the team gets built. Um, We don't have, we're fortunate enough. We don't have a whole lot of turnover. And um, in 15 years, it's like we've not had that many. And um, and that's one of the reasons behind our success as well, because things stay consistent. Either they're consistently bad and they become the norm, or they're consistently good and they become the norm. But they're consistent. I think that's the key word. Um, and, you know, so it's like, so this is how we usually find our staff. It's like, you know, through references. And um, everybody who comes on board, it's just my philosophy that it's like it's a very collaborative, team-oriented environment. And we need to take everybody's input. Um, we do need to consult everyone because there needs to be a buy-in from everyone. Because if you're not invested into the process, how do you enforce it? And it's something that I have naturally always operated with. It's not something that I have developed. Um, and it's, it's a collaborative environment. It's like, you know, we always ask the chefs, it's like, okay, you know, how about you create your version of it, then I will create my version of it, and we'll see whoever wins. Sometimes I win, sometimes they win, right? And sometimes we all lose because, <laughs> the, you know, while in theory it sounded excellent, but on a production line it doesn't make any sense, you know. So that that's as well. 
from a business perspective, so I have a, a restaurant that I run with my brother. It's it's fairly new, but we uh, had to get investors in order to open. And part of the process of going through that is writing a pro forma and sort of developing this elevator pitch of explaining right. what the restaurant's going to be, how successful is it going to be, uh, you know, what do we hope to achieve with it. Uh, you had a wonderful business background, I and uh, you had obviously been in many professional settings. Yes. I- I'm curious, without having, you don't have to go into, a, you know, extreme detail, <laughs> but did you self-fund the restaurant? If not, if you had investors, can you explain what either one of those processes was like, either trying to raise funds or what, what it was like going going alone, if that's the route that you took? Well, you know, initially, it's like, and I was going alone. And it still is, is the case for the most part. And, uh, it, it's very difficult because it's like it's hard to explain to someone. It's like, you know, when I, when, when I started, um, you know, we went to the banks and the banks said, it's like, well, you have zero experience. We can't lend anything to you. <laughs> so if you're so hell-bent upon it's like doing it, it's like, why don't you put your skin in the game? Uh-huh. Right. Right. Um, and that's what we ended up doing. And uh, it's like, you know, we, we put the skin in the game and every piece of clothing that we <laughs> own along <laughs> with it. Um, you know, so not only that, it was all in or all out. And so when um, when you sit down with your wife and you are deciding together that you want to do a restaurant, is the initial feeling that uh, it was that it would be sort of all encompassing, or did you did you both necessarily view it as potentially a wonderful side project? And I'm curious, at what point did it fully overtake your life? Had you left? Um, your job at, at Oracle when you decided to start doing the restaurant, or were you doing both simultaneously? So I think for a very brief uh, moment, probably maybe about a period of four months, or actually less than that, it's like I was doing a combination of both. And at the time, I was working at Cisco um, after I left Oracle, and I bought this pizza place. Mm-hmm. And um, which we were going to turn into an Indian restaurant. And then it's like I met some co-workers at, uh, at the place and they always said, it's like, oh, I used to go there as a child because it was a pizza place from 1962. I'm a sucker for nostalgia. Uh-huh. And not knowing anything, it's like, you know, it's like emotional decisions rather than financial decisions. I was like, it's like, okay, we're going to keep it the pizza restaurant. Because how many places can you go to where you can say it's like I came here when I was a kid? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was very happy with my decision because it wasn't really a huge money maker, but it made me happy. And I met people there that came with their grandkids now. Um, and they said, it's like, you know, I proposed to my wife on sitting on that table over there. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, hard, it's hard to... To make those memories disappear to once disappear. you hear the story. When, when you when you hear that. So it's like so the more you hear, the more difficult it gets. And but eventually it's like you know, as I um in, in a couple of months right after it's like I bought that pizza place, it's like we started Saffron. And I dove more into it and then my focus was divided between the two places, but it's like you know, pizza didn't come naturally to me. Indian food did. And um, although it's like the pizza place did well, it's like in a, eventually it just faded away. Mm-hmm. And um, I kept it open just because it provided employment for the people that worked. And uh, I inherited um, the employees at that location. I owned that location for about 10 years. And um, they were pretty much the same employees the old 10 years. And we still have its like employees at Saffron. It's like we've been there 14 plus years. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's like, you know, initially, first, we couldn't afford employees. So we were doing a whole lot by ourselves. 
and then slowly the ones that we could afford have stuck around. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know, so that's where we are. Uh, tell me about Rasa. How did uh, Rasa come to be? How many years after Saffron did you open it? And uh, when you set out to open it, how different did you either want it to be, or uh, did you hope that it would be different from Saffron? Well, definitely the the intent was that the next project was going to be different from my last project um, because I had not a big proponent of you know duplicating whatever I do because there's no challenge in it. It's you know you just don't go from saffron one to two and three and four. It's just I mean for some people it's a successful route. It's not something that I aspire to do. And when we set out, it's like it was 10 years after I'd been in business that I finally got the courage of saying, it's like, okay, yes, I can, I can open up another restaurant. And more than the courage, I think it was pushing by my wife mm-hmm. <laughs> that I think you're ready because you just stay home a little too much now. <laughs> <laughs> 10 years is ten, long enough. Ten, ten on years. one, let's try number two. Let's try number two. And uh, so it's like, you know, so we came up with the concept of uh, it wasn't going to be Rasa. It was going to be a different restaurant. And, we, you know, we hired a chef from India. It's like we, you know, did his visa and everything else. And it's like we brought him over. Um, we signed up a lease for a restaurant. Um, and that lease didn't pan out because it's like I got a call from one of my guests who was a regular. And uh, she indicated it's like, you know, that the location that we were looking at. And it was all negotiated, you know, five months into going back and forth with attorneys that it's like the, the biggest chunk of the business which we were counting on was lunch business and her company was right across the building that they were leaving moving to another location mm-hmm. so that entire weekend was a dilemma of whether do we want that location or not and we decided it's like you know that we're not going to do that location and we pulled out come monday friday get this call monday it's like we make a decision it's like okay we're not going to go ahead with it mm-hmm. And um, so we waited about a month, and then the current Rasa location came up onto the market. Um, it had been a restaurant for 30 years, and um, eight of those years have been that it was a previous Indian restaurant as well. And long story short, it's like, you know, we decided, it's like, okay, we're going to take this new concept that we wanted to develop in this other location. We're going to take it to where Rasa is today. And we started, it's like, you know, we very enthusiastically signed up and everything else. And it's like we started with the process and then ran into building roadblocks. <laughs> the classic rookie mistake. Um, you know, you, you plan on, it's like, well, 90 days, we'll be ready because we're so optimistic. And it took us about 18 months. And as, as I went along in the process, and about maybe about a one-year mark, I got so disenchanted with it that it was like, it's like, to hell with this. It's like, I'm not going to even open. It'll remain the way it is. I'll continue to pay rent till we can figure it out <laughs> what we're going to do. And, uh, you know, that's how it's going to be. And then one fine morning, it's like on the New Year's Day, I woke up with this newfound energy to say, it's like, you know what? We're not even going to do that project that we're going to do. We're going to do South Indian now. And Rasa was born. So for the listeners that are not uh, clear on what South Indian is, can you uh, explain a little bit about some of the flavors, some of the the menu items that are on Rasa that differentiate it from perhaps not only Saffron, but from other restaurants that they may be familiar with? Okay. Well, I mean, so most of us are only familiar with Indian cuisine not the nuances of the cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a big country. It, you know, it does have a lot of variety. We have east, west, north, and south, just like every place else. 
and southern indian cuisine is reflective of you know starting going down towards the coastal cuisine and then coming up towards west bengal and um, on that peninsula, so the, the, the clearest or the cleanest definition is it's like in northern food we define as little to be more richer, more heavier, more, I would say it's like in a grain-based, more cream-based. Southern Indian food happens to be more rice-based, lentil-based. Um, and then, of course, it's the abundance of the ingredients within the area. So it's a lot of coconut, a lot of tamarind, so a lot of cooling spices. But it's also coming in from a region which is much harder than the north than the north and which by the virtue of being the geographic location makes the cuisine a tad bit spicier than the northern food so northern food is not as spicy as as the southern food southern food is and when i say spice it's like i don't mean heat necessarily um it's more more prominent flavors of you know the spices you taste them a lot more so a greater intensity of of the spices used sometimes. Correct, because it's like, you know, if you look at the northern Indian food, it's like at least here, there's a lot of butter and cream, mm-hmm. which kind of like dulls down or sure. you know, it can, mutes. It can mute the flavors. It, it can yeah. mute the flavors a little bit, but it's like it's not so much in, in the southern Indian food. So Rasa is, uh, it's a Michelin-starred restaurant. It is. And uh, was that an intention upon opening to try to court that type of... Uh, Accolade, or did it come out of the blue? It came out of the blue. It was a shocker, in fact. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was never the intent um, that we wanted to run a Michelin star restaurant. Now it's more than running the restaurant is managing expectations. And um, it, we just wanted to present a food in a very different way. Um, we wanted people to experience it's like a, what Southern Indian cuisine is, the nuances. And, and there are tons of Southern Indian restaurants, um, you know, across the United States. One of the primary things is I would say majority of them are vegetarian restaurants. And we didn't want to be one because it's not like people in the South don't eat meat. And um, so we wanted to present that as well, that it's like we wanted to be all encompassing um, a better, fuller menu, which is a representation of every kind, um, uh, you know, a bounty of southern Indian food. And we want to present that. And that's that's how it's like, you know, we, we structured Rasa. You, you mentioned the word managing. You said managing expectations. And yes. the word expectations in a restaurant is so tied up in so many different things. The, it is. the hospitality of the experience extends from the food to the greeting at the front door to the bathrooms. You have two restaurants. One has been open longer than the other. So you have different expectations to manage. One is you have a Michelin-starred restaurant, and people have a lot of ideas tied Mm -hmm. up in that. And one is – it's another one has been around for even longer. And so there are expectations of longevity, and people say, well, if it's been here for X amount of years, it must be – it must have this, this, and this. I'm curious – what, what to you are the, the greatest challenges at both restaurants right. in terms of the hospitality and the managing of expectations? Well, I think the the biggest factor, I think the most common combining element between the two is food. And, you know, you can't run a restaurant, be it Michelin or any any other way, if the food is bad. Um, so that's that's the first and the foremost focus. And, and at Saffron, it's like, you know, that's always been the focus where it's like, you know, the, the, I think our claim to fame or more like it's like, you know, our survival depended upon that we always strived and it's like, you know, we always stood behind the quality of what we produced. And it's like if we were ever in doubt, it's like it was just never served and it still is true today. 
Um, in terms of managing expectation, um, obviously, it's like, you know, um, we have a little bit more leeway in saffron than we have in rasa. People are more forgiving there. Um, and people are not so forgiving in Rasa because it's a Michelin star restaurant. And I'm not quite sure exactly how do I manage that, but uh, somehow it's like, you know, we were the same restaurant before the the accolade, and we are the same restaurant after the accolade as well. And, you know, we're, we're in a suburban neighborhood. Um, we're, we're a neighborhood family restaurant. We don't have tasting menus. Um, uh, you know, we, we don't tout ourselves to be that way. And, but it's just managing expectations between the two. Do you still come up against the sort of negative connotations of how Americans, uh, you know, Caucasian Americans perceive Indian food? Have you transcended that at either of your restaurants, or is that still something that is like a day-to-day struggle? I think it's an ongoing battle. Mm-hmm. You know, something that has been ingrained into their brains for many years, it's like I don't think yeah. I can change it in 10 Although I've been trying. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is interesting, though, that sort of Japanese has been able to achieve a sort of a, for lack of a better term, like a, a low and a high end uh, designation, right? Correct. Like you can get $4 sushi and you can get $400 sushi. Absolutely. Um, do, you, do you ever think about like a game plan of how you fit I, in in that sort of? I think it's like, you know, I, I think things are changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think definitely things are changing. We see lot more Indian restaurants that are trying to break the norms. It's like, you know, we're definitely not the first Michelin star Indian restaurant. We may be the first ones on the West Coast, but it's like we're definitely not the first ones. Um, We've had, UK has always had, it's like, you know, terrific Indian food. And um, they've always had Michelin star restaurants there as well. So it's like, so you do have, you know, dive places, um, you know, low end hole in the wall places. And then you have a higher end. It's like, you know, I don't think we're quite at the 400 level mark yet, but it's like we're making our way Uh slowly. It's a long road. Um, but but it's it's getting there, and now it's like you know now we see a lot more people getting in, and I think it's it's got more to do with not so much as Indian cuisine, it's the people behind the cuisine, and there's more and more people are coming in that have better backgrounds, not necessarily the culinary backgrounds, but it's like at least it's like the business acumen side of it, where they don't want to open up a restaurant just because it's like, you know, they want a restaurant, you know, and, and they're opening up a restaurant because it's like they want to present something. Um, and, you know, they're, they're challenging themselves. They're challenging the norms. The chefs are taking that risks as well. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, this profession has become more glamorous than it was before. Definitely. Yeah. That, uh, that leads me to, to my next question about sort of the, the glamour and the the changing paradigm of being involved in restaurants, which was when you were growing up, uh, restaurants was really a, it was a working class profession. And like you had said earlier, it it wasn't usually filled with, uh, people who had gone to finishing schools, right? It was a, it was a job that you could do with your hands. And if you worked hard, you could, you could be there. Now you run restaurants, but you have an MBA and you went, you went the professional route. Um, this also I think is tied up in a lot of ideas about this country and immigration and what this country can provide, which is, um, a platform to be successful. Um, I, I know that you closed your restaurant on February 16th. Um, and I want you to first talk a little bit about, you know, how you came to that decision. And, and then after that, I, I want to ask you about, um, uh, about another question related to how 
coming to this country and coming here with what we would consider sort of like a traditional career trajectory, how you feel about now sort of changing with times and now you're a restaurateur, um, which wasn't glamorous, you know, 20, yes. 30 years ago when you came here. Right. Well, I mean, def- it definitely was not glamorous. It's like, and I'll, I'll tell you from my personal experience that when I opened up the first restaurant and I shared that with my father, uh, his verbatim response was, if you wanted to do dishes, you could have done it here. <laughs> Why did you make me waste money? That's a good line, Dad. Um, that is a good yeah. line. Yeah. And, it's like, you know, and today it's the same guy. It's like, who says, oh, my son has restaurants. And, uh, you know, so, that, so that's changed within mm-hmm. our family. Um, but this, this country does give everybody an opportunity and everybody has a story to tell. It's like, you know, mine is different than others. It's like, you know, and everybody has a different one to say. Um, and, but here the recognition is there for the labor, which is not necessarily there. It's like, you know, in some other countries as well. So it's like, so there is a dignity in labor, um, which is recognized here. If you can work hard, you can succeed. And, and I think it's like, it gives you the confidence, people, the positivity, um, that's there. It's like, you know, other people's encouraging. It's like, well, great. It's like, we're happy for you. It's like, that doesn't exist in so many other places. Um, you will always have people that are negative about and everything. Oh, it's like this guy opened up a restaurant right next to me. I hope he fails. <laughs> you know, that that will always be there. But it's like, I don't think it's it's healthy. But it's like, I think majority of it is is positive. And and that's what's so unique about this country, that you can come in and most people, it's like, you know, have a story to tell. Somebody came with two bags, others came with none. Um, you know, some came with, it's like 10 bucks in their pocket, another came with a thousand, but that's pretty much it. It's like nobody brought a home over here. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody brought a huge bank account for the most part. And people have had remarkable successes in this country. And that's what the whole entire immigrant experience is. And there's not even, it is a country of immigrants made up by immigrants. Nobody was born here. You're born as you go along, but it's like everybody migrated at some point in time. So, you know, so that's, that's how I feel. What does the what does the next ten years bring for both of your restaurants? Do you have do you have plans? Do you have ideas that you can share, or um, or, or are you just kind of a are you a day by day type of person and wait and see? <laughs> I think I, I think we all make plans here and there, but when it comes to restaurants, um, we're in a business which is a day by day business and an opinion by opinion business. Every time of the day right every operating hour of the day if you had 100 people dine in with you it's like well you all were almost were subjected to 100 plus opinions that particular day so it's hard to like project you know five years down the road what you could project is it's like you know i think is what where your goals are as to how and where you want to sustain and then you're second reading into those numbers looking into those trends and then seeing it's like you know how do you achieve growth but manageable growth it's like you know not the unrealistic wall street growth that year over year we gotta have 25 percent growth (laughs) organic growth it's like how do you do that well number manipulation (laughs) that's it (laughs) you know and uh, in the real world it doesn't happen um and you know that's uh, to to answer your question it's like you know i don't think it's like i have a five-year plan um, I think I have a five-day plan, um, which is it's like, well, next five days, this is what you need to do. And, you know, we want to get to certain places in a given amount of time, but there's so many challenges in your day-to-day. I don't think you ever get to it. So it's like it always resets to that five-day plan. Tell the listeners when they're on the West Coast or if they're in the San Francisco area, where can they find both of your restaurants? Just give, uh, give it addresses of both. Well, Rasa is located uh, south of the San Francisco International Airport in downtown Burlingame. 
at 209 Park Road. Um, you can certainly look that up at rasaindian.com. And Saffron is located farther down south, about seven miles from uh, the San Francisco International Airport, in the lovely downtown of San Carlos on 1143 San Carlos Avenue in San Carlos. And it's saffronindianbistro.com. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us. Please join us next week, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. for the new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.